some of you, some of you kids are on quick recall, um, so this might be a thing for you. It might be a thing for your parents. Little quiz here. Which president since John F. Kennedy, not counting John F. Kennedy, which president since John F. Kennedy has had the highest average approval rating during his presidency? Which president after John F. Kennedy has had the highest average approval rating after his presidency? This is not a rhetorical question. Somebody give me Reagan. No. Carter. No. Obama. Good guess. No. Keep going. What's that? Bush. First Bush. Who said that? Tommy. Congratulations. It took us four guesses to get there. I thought it might take us more. George H.W. Bush uh, had the highest average approval rating, and he only lasted for four years. And he, in the mind of the people, got a D minus. It was about a 60% approval rating, and it was about five percentage points above the closest competitor. So everybody else since John F. Kennedy, in the collective vote of the people, got an F, failed. Uh, now, why, well, you ask why is that? We could answer it in all kinds of ways, and they're all different kinds of ways of answering the question, and that's one of the reasons that collectively presidents consistently get an F. John F. Kennedy, by the, by the way, got a C-, and he was well above others. Being a president is a hard job. Being a leader for all the people is a hard job. How do you protect the rights of all people when people's rights seem so different from one another? How do you protect the rights of, of property for those who have legitimately earned property? And how do you also protect the opportunity of disadvantaged people to earn property honestly as well? That's a harder question to answer because it is easy for advantaged people to, in very, very subtle ways, uh, exercise illegitimate rights without it even looking like it. How? How do you protect the rights of all kinds of people? I want a leader who's impartial, especially to me. How do you find a leader who's really impartial to everyone? What, what do you need? What kind of a leader do you need? We need somebody who's able, right? Somebody who has good intentions but constantly comes up with bad ideas, uh, despite their good intentions, is not going to be a good leader. They also need the authority to lead. They, they need the legal ability, the agreed-on ability, to carry out their good ideas with good intentions. They need the ability, and they need the authority. And to some degree, God's people anticipated those things when they asked for a leader. I'm rewinding well before John F. Kennedy here to the time of Samuel in the Old Testament when the people had experienced a season of, of judges, of not having a king, and of everybody in the land doing what was right in his own eyes because they didn't have a king. So things were dysfunctional. Things weren't working. 
people were not being judged impartially, at least not consistently. And the people came to Moses, came to Samuel rather, and said, you're old. <laughs> There's a way to start a conversation, right? You're old and your sons don't follow in your ways. So give us a king to rule over us. Now, God had told the people through Moses, the time will come when you're going to ask for a king. It's okay for you to ask for a king and you can have a king. But it became clear when the people came to Samuel to ask for a king, it became clear very quickly that they were not asking for a king on God's terms. They weren't asking for the right kind of king. They didn't want the right kind of king. That became clear as the conversation with Samuel continued. And ultimately people said, no, we want a king to rule over us like the nations. We want a king to fight our battles for us. We want a king to save us. We want the kind of king that we would vote for. So Samuel warned them. And he said, I'm, he, and Samuel did this at God's direction. Samuel said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to appoint a king for you. And he's going to do exactly what the law says he shouldn't do. He is going to be not a king for you. He's going to be the king of you. He's going to rule over you. He's not going to do what Deuteronomy says that a king ought to do. Here's what God has said a king ought to do. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. This, it, this needs to be a man, to be the kind of king that God would choose. He needs to be a man who's under authority and knows it. He cannot only have ability. He can't only have authority. He needs to be under authority. He needs to have accountability. And he needs to be accountable to God's law. And at the core of God's law, uh, not only to the king, but to all people, if this king is really, is really essentially doing his devotions in God's word daily, at the very core of that law, he's going to find what it really means to relate to God's people in a fitting way as king. Instead of ruling over them and multiplying things for himself, at the very core of that law, he's going to find Leviticus 19, which is going to tell him in verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. So there it is. There's justice. There's impartial judging. And what's that driven by? That's driven by the fourth A, we could say, that a leader needs in order to lead impartially. He needs ability. He needs authority. He needs accountability, and in order to give him straight A's, we'll just say he needs affection for his neighbor. This is just a few verses later in Leviticus 19. And I'm, oh, here it is, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Where do we find that kind of king? 
Where do we find a king that gets straight A's? Well, the people of Israel certainly didn't find it in the kind of king that God allowed them to have at first, in Saul. He turned out to be the kind of king who just threw the law out the window when it really seemed to matter to him. He didn't operate under the accountability of the law and didn't demonstrate love for his neighbor. Israel came much closer in the person of David, a man after God's own heart, really, but inconsistently. And God made to David a promise, a promise that could not be fulfilled through David because David wasn't good enough. The promise included, David, you're going to die. And I'm going to give you a son to sit on your throne forever. Through you, I'm going to give my people the right kind of king. Through you, I'm going to give my people a king for all the people. And a king for all the people. A king who is everything he's supposed to be, we can expect is going to come in a way that we don't expect. We've tried over and over to pick a leader that really gets straight A's, a leader who's worthy of permanent rule. And we found in our own country, the best we can do is rotate through people and make sure that nobody has absolute power. Who deserves to rule forever? It's going to be somebody who comes like we don't expect. And that's exactly what we find in Luke 2, verses 1 through 21. A king for all the people. And he shows up in a way that none of us would have guessed. Before we go any further, I just want to read the text. This is in Luke 2, verses 1 through 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. 
And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to see a contrast between kings unfolded here as we see the kind of king that we really would expect and the kind of king that we very much wouldn't expect. We're going to see a king's word fulfilled first, and then we're going to see the word about the king fulfilled in verses 3 through 7. Then we're going to hear a word about the king for all people. And then we're going to hear that that word about the king, this message about the king that's sent in such a way as to show this is for all the people. The word about the king is reliable. It can be banked on. Going back to the same idea that Luke is working hard to carefully lay out for Theophilus, I want you to know the reliability of the things you've been taught about Christ. The word about this king proves to be reliable. And as this is all done, this is done in such a way as to demonstrate that this is a king for all the people. We see the contrast first in, uh, in, in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Well, what's going on here? Well, Caesar Augustus, uh, Octavian, um, by his, his regular name, is... Is he's counting, he's counting what belongs to him for the purpose of taxation. Peter alluded to this last week. It, it sends a message that not only uh, are you going to be taxed, but uh, you belong to me. I'm counting you because you're mine. And then Luke, it appears, clarifies in verse 2 something about this particular registration. The regular ESV translation says this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, there's a lot of discussion about this verse and about about, uh, the reliability of the Bible as it relates to this verse. I'm not going to take the time to go into that, but if you have questions, I'd be glad to to talk about this. Uh, Long story short, I think the best resolution to the question is actually a note that you'll see if you're using the ESV Bible. There's a note at the bottom that says, This could also be translated in the way that I think that it ought to be. This is the registration before Quirinius was governor of Syria. It could easily be translated that way. That's not playing games with the language. This was the registration before Quirinius was governor of Syria. There there was a registration while Quirinius was governor of Syria, which he started to be in in, uh, AD 6. This is well after the events in this passage. During that registration, during that census, uh, there were some objections. There was an uprising. Luke actually refers to that in Acts 5.37 when there's this description of how in the days of the census, this guy named Judas, not, not the betrayer, another Judas, rose up and drew people after him, and basically he was killed and his following was scattered. So, 
the, this, that registration, the registration while Quirinius was governor of Syria, was one that was responded to with some level of rebellion. And Luke seems to be saying, this isn't that one. He may even be intending, uh, this registration was responded to quietly. That's, that, that seems to be pointed to in verse 3, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth. So as this king uh, gives this word, uh, he speaks, the king speaks, and his word is fulfilled, and he keeps the peace. All kings considered, this guy could be worse, this Caesar Augustus guy. If you've heard the term Pax Romana, the Roman peace, he was the guy who kind of introduced that to the realm. Um, could have been a lot worse during his time. And it appears that people respond with relative quietness to this census. At the same time, by registering them for taxation purposes, the king shows that he is the king of all the people, over all the people. Not so much that he is the king for all the people the king that all of our hearts ultimately long for. So he counts them so he can tax them. And as he does, he has no idea what he's actually a part of. He has no idea that his word is producing a fulfillment of God's word. If he had had people around him, perhaps like the, the wise men of the East, uh, who were familiar with the sacred texts of other cultures, they may have said to him, you know what, just to be safe, why don't you make sure that nobody from the line of David ever allows a baby to be born in Bethlehem. Send them out of Bethlehem for this baby to be born, because there's this promise in the Hebrew Scriptures, and we don't put a lot of stock in that, but just to be safe, let's not mess around with this. Caesar Augustus, as uh, intelligent as he is, has no idea what he's doing. He is actually setting up the fulfillment of God's promise to set a king on David's throne forever. Because the king's decree landed God's saving king in Bethlehem right when he needed to be landed there. And so we see the word about the king, the word about the king, fulfilled in verses 4 to 7. Luke is writing about the things that have been accomplished among us. The things, not just the things that have happened, the things that have been done because God said they needed to be done. The things that have been fulfilled. And we see those things beginning here. The God who removes kings and sets up kings, as Daniel has described him, has spoken about a king and now he's making that happen. And very much on purpose, he's making it happen quietly. It's a very understated way of fulfilling his promises. Of fulfilling the promise that he's given us in Isaiah 9, 6-7. I think this was part of the passage that we read earlier. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When we read this passage, these four verses in Luke 2, that's specifically describing the birth of Jesus, you see just an extraordinarily understated situation. And of course, much has rightly been made of the fact that you wouldn't expect a king to be born here. Uh, you wouldn't expect a, you'd expect a king to be born in a palace. You wouldn't expect him to be born in some form of a stable and laid in a manger. Even, even at the birth of John, there was a sort of family and neighbor celebration. That doesn't even happen here. This happens in total obscurity. And you, you wouldn't have any idea that this was the birth of a king, much less the king, unless you knew and believed what God had said. If you know and believe what God has said, then you at least have some hint, even in this passage, about what's happening. Because there's actually not king language here, not using the word king. But there is David language. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Anyone with a knowledge of David and of Isaiah 9, which we just read, has reason to look at these events and see God's purposes accomplished. All the more if they're familiar with Micah 5 too. But to you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. So David, who's from the line of David, goes to this place that's referred to as the city of David. And this son is born here. And the way in which he comes starts to demonstrate that he is a king for all the people, that nobody's excluded, even the people that we might most expect to be excluded. He comes right to their level. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, for Mary to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The kind of situation that would make anybody feel like an outsider in society. And that's exactly where the king shows up when he's born. He's a king for all the people. And the announcement that he has come, the word about the king, is given to emphasize the same point, that he's a king for all the people. We see that word about the king for all the people, a message about the king for all the people in verses 8 through 14. Verse 8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Of course, of course there's shepherds there. We know there's shepherds there. We would expect 
shepherds to be there because we sing about them every year. And there's no nativity scene that's complete, that's complete without shepherds there, right? It makes sense to us, but nobody at the time of Luke's writing is thinking, oh, of course, shepherds. They need to be there for the nativity scene. It really makes no sense culturally that shepherds would show up next in the story unless this is a king for all the people. And unless maybe you're familiar with David's own story. Come back to that in a minute. But here you have shepherds. They're sitting out on a hill at midnight. Nobody knows them. They're nobodies. And in the midst of this quiet obscurity, there is this totally unexpected interruption of the quietness. Verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They didn't expect anybody to visit. They're nobodies. They're not visited by anyone. And here, they're visited with the third of three angel visits. And this one includes a, a greater display of glory than any of the others. You might expect an angel to show up to a priest while he's in the temple, even though the priest didn't expect it. You'd less expect an angel to show up to an unknown girl in Nazareth. And, and here, you maybe would even less expect an angel to show up to these unknown shepherds in the middle of the night, and they get the most glorious-looking arrival of an angel so far. Here's someone like they've never seen, brighter than the sun, in the middle of the night. And there's no time to even guess. There's no time to mentally process what's going on. And so they are filled with great fear. That's all that there's time for. Which is helpful. It's helpful that they're filled with great fear because at least it gets their attention. But being filled with great fear is not the point. The point is, is actually the opposite. And the angel makes that clear. The point is that the promised king has come to rule you and to rescue you. The angel says, Fear not, verse 10, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's the only place in the Bible where those three words are all put together in the same place. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Somebody who can rescue us. Somebody who can rule us. Somebody who is God's chosen king. God's anointed. This is the one who can do this for us and this is good news for all the people. At the time, the shepherds would have understood that to mean all the people of Israel. And it did mean that. It's going to expand beyond that as well. But first, they need to hear that this is for all the people, even as, as they're processing it. it all, this is for all the people of Israel. And the way that's emphasized is in the way the news is brought. Notice who this child is born to in verse 11. 
He's born unto you. Who's being spoken to? Well, the shepherds are. He's not being born exclusively to them, but he's being born actually to them. He's for you. And in order to emphasize that even more, this unto you part, there is something that is unto you, you shepherds, exclusively. Something that's only for you. There's a sign for you. They would have good reason just to say, okay, we believe you. <laughs> and, and yet, graciously, God says, I want you to know this is for all the people. This is for you. And so there's a sign for you that only you are going to see, a private screening for the privileged few. It's a sign that is uniquely suited to them. You're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. If they'd been told, you're going to find a baby wrapped in silk and lying in a royal bassinet, they probably would think, how in the world are we even going to get in there? We're never going to see this baby. We, we don't have access to see a royal child. But if the child's wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, you can get into a stable, even if you're a shepherd. And so this is a sign for them. By sending a mind-blowing announcement to almost nobody, God makes clear that this Savior, who is Christ the Lord, is truly for all the people. Here's this thunderous announcement. We, we actually see the, the, the greatest volume of this thunderous announcement in verse 13. It's not restricted to one angel. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Thunderous angelic announcement. And we might think, it's wasted. It's given to a few shepherds on the hillside. I mean, we've, we've already been given ideas for who maybe this could be brought to. We've already been told about Caesar Augustus. How about bring this to him, or at least to Quirinius, or to whoever else is governor of Syria at the time? Give it, give it to somebody who can do something with it. Well, these people can, and it's unexpected, and it's very much on purpose. And they're told that this is something that results in God's great glory and man's great good. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is not a, this is not a fleeting Christmas time peace. Uh, you remember the snow that we got on Christmas Eve? Wasn't that like exactly the perfect snow? <laughs> uh, right now it feels like always winter and never Christmas. At the time, it just felt like, wow, this is such a peaceful snow. This is exactly the way snow ought to be a little bit on Christmas Eve and then melt. At least that's my perspective. This fleeting Christmas time peace uh, then goes away. Uh, this, this was not that. When we think peace on earth, the angels had in mind something much greater, something that can only be brought by a qualified king 
for all the people. The shepherds respond in faith. They say, we, we got to go see this. We got to go find this. And as they do, and as we ought to expect, they find God's word reliable in verses 15 through 20. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to them. That's an interesting thing that they should say. Not that they should say, well, let's go find this. But when the angel told them where to go, he said, born to you this day in the city of David is Christ the Lord. What does that always refer to in the Bible? It always refers to Jerusalem. But that's not how it registers with the shepherds. They don't say, let's go to Jerusalem. They say, let's go to Bethlehem. Somehow, somehow, when they hear the city of David, they hear an honoring of humble beginnings. The kind of honoring that God did for David himself. That David even had to be corrected with. When David came up with a great idea, to build God a house. I'm going to build a house for you. And he, he tells his prophet, and his prophet says, do it and on his prophet's way out. Uh, the, God tells him, pause, wait a minute. There's, there's something bigger going on here. This is not about David building me a house. David, first and foremost, needs to remember his beginnings. This is the word that came that night to Nathan, the prophet, this is in 2 Samuel 7, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day that I brought up this people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent from my dwelling. And then he tells, he reminds David about his own past. Did I not take you from the flock? Didn't I take you from the flock? I'm looking at the wrong passage. That's why I can't find the words. It's here, I promise. I'm going to have to paraphrase. Didn't I take you from the flock? in order to shepherd my people Israel. I, I, I didn't find you because you were in an impressive place. I took you from Bethlehem. Those are your humble beginnings. And shepherds, as they are approached by angels and told, God has sent you a Savior, Christ the Lord, are in the perfect context to remember that God must be the one to do this. And God doesn't do it based on human qualifications. Even when David thinks that he's qualified to build God a, house, God a house, God reminds him, I'm the one who took you from the flock to shepherd my people Israel. This is reflected in Psalm 78. He took him from the sheepfolds, sheepfolds from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. And so they go, and they go to the city of David that's most fitting in this situation. They go to Bethlehem. 
and they find exactly what they were told. And it's more than an amazing coincidence. And they know that, and so they are compelled to speak. They're compelled to tell other people about it. Verse 17, And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. The saying that had been told them concerning this child. Now, they certainly could have said, hey, we were told by an angel that we were going to find a baby lying in a manger, and we did, and what an amazing coincidence. Uh, You never find a baby lying in a manger, and we were told we would, and we did. The, The coincidence wasn't the point. The unusual nature of finding this baby was there to prove the reliability of his identity, to show who he was. When you find this baby lying in the manger, you'll know that this is a Savior, Christ the Lord. So they go and tell people, we we found the Savior, Christ the Lord. We found the one that the angel told us we could know was the Savior, Christ the Lord. What a fitting response to finding the Savior, Christ the Lord, and going out and saying, I found him. We've found the one that we've been told about. And as we might expect, people are bewildered by hearing it in this way. Verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. This is not what we, ex- what we expected. A-, a baby born in a manger, th- this doesn't sound like the kind of king who's able to rule us and rescue us. And so they wonder. This is not what we expected. This is a kind of wondering that will continue to happen as people respond to Jesus. As Jesus moves toward that point in Luke 9, when he's going to set his face toward Jerusalem, we find people doing the same kinds of things. People wondering about Jesus. People wondering, people marveling, people being bewildered by what he's doing. Even Mary uh, is gathering clues at this time. Uh, Mary has been given certain information about this child, and at the same time, Mary's got a background of hearing about this king that's coming, and she has not been told everything. So even Mary is gathering clues as she goes. What's it going to mean for this child to be this kind of king? And so she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, like she's gathering together clues, pieces of a puzzle, to try to figure out, what what is this all about? This is not the last time this is going to happen with Mary. The last time Mary herself is going to be astonished and bewildered by what's happening, and as she tries to figure out, how is he going to be this kind of king? The shepherds, for their part, go on rejoicing in the privilege of hearing and in the reliability of what they've heard. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them message here for them and through them that the king has come to rescue you and to rule you. 
And the normal response is, you might wonder how. How is this king going to do this? And this is helpful for us to remember that as we interact with people, as you talk to people about Christ, as you talk to people about the Savior who is Christ the Lord, you can expect some combination of what we see all the way throughout Luke. Some combination of perhaps bewilderment, perhaps objection that comes from two different things that probably are in the heart of every person. Uh, one thing is the hope that I'm good enough. Self-justification. You see that all through Luke. The lawyer seeking to justify himself said, who's my neighbor? Get me out of this. Give me some kind of rule for loving my neighbor that proves that I already do, that I'm good enough. The rich young ruler who says, I've done all these things since my youth. The Pharisee in Jesus' parable who says, I thank you that I'm better than this guy. Self-justification, this sense that I'm okay. As you've talked to people about Christ, uh, have you heard that? That sense that, you know, in the end, um, I, I, I actually think I'm okay ruling myself. Alongside that desire for self-justification, alongside hoping that I'm okay, in each person we interact with, is the deep-seated fear that I'm not, that I'm not okay, that I'm not good enough, and that that's going to destroy me, that it means that I'm not qualified for anything good. And so, since we can't handle that fear, since we can't handle that feeling, we cover it up with self-justification. But deeper, in those darker moments, Maybe in the darkness of midnight on the hillside is that feeling that I, I'm, I'm on the outside of this. I'm never going to be qualified for what God offers. Somebody who feels much more like the, the tax collector in Jesus' parable, who won't even raise his eyes to heaven and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And this king came to rule and to rescue all people. And so Jesus says about that tax collector, I tell you the truth, this man went home justified. And that justification in the end had to be accomplished. Jesus had to pay for that justification. This was a king who had to have the ability, who had to have the authority, who had to live under the accountability of God's rule and had to perfectly live out affection for his people, had to perfectly live out love, in the end had to give up his own life for our life. This is the way that Jesus, the unexpected Savior who is Christ the Lord, is the King for all the people, including you, including me, including the person you talk to who says, I hope I'm good enough and I'm afraid I'm not. Father, we need this kind of king, and we would not, of our own wisdom, choose him. And so we thank you that you've sent him in such a way as to prove that he is the king for all the people. We thank you for giving him for us. I pray that day by day we would trust him as he is, and that we would hold him out as he is, that we would gladly, as the shepherds, share the reliability 
of the announcement that, that's come to us about your Son. Lord, empower us for this by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.